so here we are at last. We have finally reached the conclusion of the last good 7 of 9 episode. I know, I know, I'm kind of exaggerating. I've actually referenced this episode many times in the last, I think, two seasons at this point in time. Because there's just so much uh, that's been building up to this moment. So a little bit of a behind-the-scenes real quick. Uh, Ron Moore is the gentleman who basically made this episode. Sorry, give me just a moment here. <laughs> Darn it. There. Ron Moore is the one who actually wrote this episode and made this episode. In his own words, he said that Seven was someone unique to Star Trek. Someone that they couldn't do... Like, like they could do stories with her that they couldn't do with anyone else. And he really wanted to stretch creatively and try to see what he could accomplish using her as a character. And this was his first and only foray into doing that. Uh, the previous episode, Equinox Part 2, he did a little bit of work on. Uh, he worked on this episode, and he worked on another episode, uh, Barge of the Dead, which I don't remember if that's the next one or not, but those are the three he worked on for Voyager before he, you know, was gone kaput for good. And this is, in my opinion, the best way for Seven to basically exit the show. It's not like I dislike her character from now on, other than a few scenes, but the whole Seven learns a lesson about humanity thing is going to get a lot worse, and her character development is basically going to be worse in every way from this point on because she'll do the thing she'll do one of two things she'll either act like she was written three seasons ago or she'll act as if she's she has had no character development and then she'll have character development and then the reset button will be get hit in the episode so she's back to square one again and she will let's be blunt about this seven will basically not move on from the point that she's at in this episode for the rest of the series sorry guys this was the perfect time to take her in a new direction and do other stuff and new stuff with her. Again, as Moore himself said, you know, stuff you can't do with other people. But this is it. This is the last one. This is this is the end. So from now on, we're going to start referring to the new seven from episodes from this point on as... Well, I have no idea what. We'll come up with something suitably derogatory later. For now, I do want to heap praise on this episode. This is among my favorite Voyager episodes, and I really enjoy... Uh, what they did with this. It has a little bit higher quality in terms of writing than some of the other Voyager episodes, and I realized I just pretty much gave away the fact that I like Ronald D. Moore's writing <laughs> better than I like most of Voyager's writing. <sighs> Again, it's a big on continuity, but he also likes to do a bit of a bait-and-switch, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. Let, let's go through the episode in order here, shall we? So, poor Tuvok. We've actually talked on this show several times about the difference in dichotomy between whether or not you uh, prefer security or whether or not you prefer freedom and the difference between those two choices. Tuvok, especially as security chief, is someone who generally is going to prefer free, uh, security. Whereas, you know, someone like Chakotay, ironically, is someone who's probably going to prefer freedom. And, um, I have to imagine that the whole opening up their ship to whoever wants to come aboard has to be just kind of a, a continuous waking nightmare for poor Tuvok, and keeping that all straight and keeping the ship safe. In actual fact, and I mean this sincerely, Voyager got off lucky in the fact that the only issue they had was a couple of minor uh, criminal incursions and three Borg, ex-Borg drones who happened to want to you know, do stuff with their crew. I mean, think about that for a moment. Super advanced spaceship ends up on a station and just says, yeah, come on on board. I mean, imagine the potential for, for screw-ups there. Um, 
I also have to find it absolutely horrifying. I know, I know, I know. Voyager doesn't give a crap about continuity. But you remember what the last episode was? Oh, that's right. It was Equinox, an episode in which one of the major points was the fact that the Equinox crew, by happenstance, had basically run into one hostile race after another. They had found a couple of peaceful races, and then a whole bunch of hostile ones. Imagine how it would have felt for the Equinox crew if they had gotten this far and managed to have, find basically what is a big open, hey, yeah, let's go hang out with each other kind of a conglomeration of species on this station. Now, if you're paying attention, if we were actually paying attention to continuity, the crew of the Equinox did make it to this point, aside from the few who died in that episode. They're all on Voyager right now. But, of course, we know how Janeway is, and she'd probably be like, No, you will not be allowed to mingle. You must stay... No, actually, in, in all sincerity, I wouldn't be surprised if she allowed them out of their quarters for, you know, the interspecies mingling if they wanted to. That being said, um, I doubt the writers thought about that at all. Because, I mean, it's it was just last week's episode. Why should we care about it now? Come on. <laughs> what do you think this is? Good television? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist that one. I do like Voyager. I do. But, uh... So it's, there's another uh, interesting tidbit in here. We've seen bits and pieces of this before. This is the first time they officially call it out that Naomi Wildman is actually emulating Borg mentality and, and whatnot. And flat out says how it's a negative thing. I like how Seven in particular finds that to be a negative, given her general disapproval of the Borg, which is fascinating given her simultaneous pride in being, you know what she is. Obviously, she herself, not actually being a proper Borg drone anymore, uh, does value her individuality and herself. But it is interesting to me that she is so staunch about Naomi Wildman not being Borg-like and trying not to emulate that particular mentality. It is also logical to me that a kid would do that. Not that I think any kid would do that, but a child who happens to revere or venerate a given individual, a given adult in their life, as Naomi very clearly and distinctly does to Seven, would probably emulate whatever Seven happened to be, whether she was Klingon or Vulcan or Borg or Bolian or whatever. Doesn't matter, right? So I like that. It's a nice touch. It's funny because for the last two episodes I've looked at for Babylon 5, which I looked at before this one, you know, from a real-life perspective, both of them had something that I, uh, I called uh, filling. Something I'll be talking about in the future as well. The idea that there's stuff that isn't really critical to the plot, or isn't really critical to the story, but it still adds something. It still adds flavor. It gives you that down-to-earth perspective, and it helps flesh out characters. The bits between uh, Seven and Naomi help fulfill that. But there's one scene that is 100% filling. It doesn't really add anything to anything other than you know, adding flavor to it. it. It is not part of the plot at all. And that is the Tom Paris and Harry Kim altercation, uh, where they discuss the situation with Janeway, which was a brilliant, amazing scene, and awesome in every way. Um, but again, it doesn't add anything to the plot. It was there for filling. It was there for flavor. A key example of what I'm talking about. I might actually start using this as one of my new favorite examples of a filling scene, because it's so unconnected. The other uh, scene I usually use for filling is actually one that is connected to the plot, uh, the one over in TNG's Phantasms, I want to say, where Riker and Worf do actually come across Troy and, and try to help save her from Data. But in this case, this has nothing to do with anything. It's just, yep, yep, we got to do a bar fight. <clears throat> now, 
I really like the misdirection. I've had to talk about this in this episode. It's made up as if, you know, the drones are villains, or at the very least partial villains. Even despite the obvious hesitance to cause her harm, there's still some genuine anger there in the fact that they are willing to do this, even though it will cause harm to Seven. And you get this big impression that, you know, at first it's like, oh my god, the Borg have learned to infiltrate. Now, I'm very curious how many of you out there, first time you saw this episode, had that same reaction. Because I know several people who did, including me. I thought the Borg, after the incidents of Unimatrix, or not Unimatrix, uh, what was the episode? I think it was Unimatrix Zero was the episode. The previous big Borg episode, that they had finally started to truly adapt. I talked about my idea of how the Borg could continue to evolve, that whole thing. And that now they had actually basically sent former drones who were infiltrating you know, as as non-drones, yet still had their implants in order to be able to cause, you know, whatever it is they needed to be doing. Now, that was actually disproven a few scenes in, but that's the first impression I got. The second impression I got is these, these, were, for, these were former drones who were, in some way, villains, in, you know, for some reason or another. And then pretty shortly after that, we get to the reality of what's happening here, which I actually really like. There's no bad guys in this episode. Not really. There's no villain. There's no bad guy of the week. Now... I hate to say this, but the mere fact that there's no bad guy of the week makes me like this episode more. I like it when you've got, you know, the established norm, and you decide to stretch a little bit outside of it. Rather than just having the continuous, oh, we've always got to have a bad guy. Instead having a situation where the the, the real threat of, the, of it is guilt and recrimination and consequences of previous actions. You know, that kind of a thing. Uh, which is awesome. Sorry, there we go. You shouldn't have heard that. I forgot to mute Skype. I forgot to mute Skype. Um, I always mute Skype when I record, just in case, so you don't hear the beep boop. So, um, I like the fact that security is actually competent for once. First of all, they detect that someone is disrupting security. Almost immediately. And I like that a lot. Because it makes sense that if you put up a looped footage on a camera, someone would notice relatively quickly. If they were competent, if they were paying attention. So that was a nice touch. Then there's that wonderful line of, all we know for certain right now is we have a security breach. And then we skip forward not too long, and then they manage to have localized it to the cargo bay and get in there to help her. I like that a lot. And if, even though you have to make a couple of logical jumps to make that work, I like it because it portrays the Voyager crew as competent. And i got to be blunt, one of the biggest problems I've always had with Star Trek is portraying the crew as incompetent. I've talked about this extensively on Voyager in particular. I talked about that just like just last week with Voyager. So seeing them actually be competent is, not, is a nice touch, and I enjoy that. Um, so... Uh, the fact that the drones slowly reverted to their previous selves makes tons of sense to me. Uh, we kind of have actually already seen this in Hue over in TNG, but it was something that didn't happen. Like, in Hugh's case, he had people explaining things to him, but here they had each other to bounce ideas off of, and every time someone else would have an idea, you notice someone else would be able to take that idea and extrapolate new ideas of it. I've used this parallel many, many, many times about how human beings learn and how we grow and how we function. Children in the playground is what I always use that. A child who still doesn't know full things and still is trying to learn and understand and grow and figure out who they are will toss out ideas and actions and thoughts and they will th those ideas and actions and thoughts will basically cause reactions and thoughts and ideas in other people who will then 
react to that, take that new information, assimilate it, and push out new, new output as a result of that. And this interaction between the kids is what causes growth, causes knowledge, causes understanding, that kind of a thing, right? So we see this happening amongst the Borg drones. And it is incredibly logical to me that that process... I almost fell over. That process would be slow and would not be immediate and would be very stilted and stunted and just, I remember this and I remember that, and it would probably be an accelerating process as well. Now, one of the things I find fascinating is I actually didn't remember that they said this flat out in the episode. I, I, I know that sounds stupid, but I always assumed it was my interpretation of the fact that, of, of why Seven acts the way they, she, she did. A.K.A. they were reverting to adults. She was reverting to a child. The time she'd been assimilated, she was in single digits. And these other people had been already full-grown adults when they were assimilated into the Collective. So she reverted to a mental state of a child, with the lack of understanding and lack of maturity and lack of comprehension that that implies. So while they were slowly getting stronger, she was effectively slowly getting weaker, and clinging to the only thing she knew. The only thing she had to form any semblance of self or decency or stability that she knew. Because she knew nothing other than that fear. We've actually already seen that fear in action. There was this wonderful scene, uh, I believe it's in the episode The Raven, where Seven literally runs under a, a console, cowering and begging for Papa. You remember that? That is exactly what we see on display here. That child who never had a chance to actually develop past that point properly. A woman whose life was taken from her, quite literally. And I like that presentation. I really, really like it because it is so understandable and she is portrayed as so sympathetic even though she does something horrible. She is terrified and alone and scared and has no idea how to even process these emotions. And then she sees someone die right after she comforts him. And then she's abandoned to be alone. Honestly, do you think any of us would have fared better in those circumstances? Because that's horrible. This is also one of the few episodes I see where they really portray assimilation as horrifying as it should be. They don't actually show the assimilation itself, but the, the character's genuine appall, uh, appalling of what they are. You know, the woman looking down and saying, look what they did to me, look at how this is. They really get across how nightmarish being assimilated really is. Uh, compare and contrast that with a later episode where Janeway and Tuvok will get assimilated as part of their plan. <laughs> Anyways. <clears throat> now, I actually don't have much else to say. Uh, oh, actually I do have one other thing to say. I really, really like... Apparently they did several takes to make this happen. I really, really like what they did with the three former drones. They all uh, talk in a sort of flowing nature. It's not in unison, which would have been acceptable, but not really have the same impact, because they're not actually unified, and that's what we're trying to get across. So they did a really, really, really good job with this. Their thoughts and their dialogue literally flows from one person to the next. Sometimes their words will overlap a little bit, so this person will say three words that this person says, and then this person will continue the sentence. Sometimes they'll say an entire sentence at the same time, but other times it'll 
bounce between each other with no actual overflow. It's very well done. It's also deliberately inconsistent in that it's not always overflow. It's not always partial overflow. It's not always interge intersecting flow. It varies between the three. And it's a great effect. It's an absolutely amazing effect and really helps to demonstrate how absolutely nightmarish it must be for these people. My heart goes out to them. But again, as I started this episode talking about, this is finally the culmination of Seven's character arc. Survival versus living. Survival is insufficient is the wonderful, beautiful quote that I myself have used in real life and that is quoted in this and I have used uh, in several episodes prior to this one when it's come up. The culmination of existence requiring internal validation. In other words, that you... That, the, that, that we matter more than the meat, is how I like to say this. And this is what Seven herself acknowledges and has a great speech with the doctor about. You more than anyone. You and I are more qualified than anyone on this ship to understand that. Only you and I truly understand that survival is insufficient. Because everyone else on that ship... Yeah, everyone else on that ship... <laughs> can't think of any exceptions there, has not really been as absolutely absent of a person like Seven and like the Doctor. As I've said before, the two have extremely natural chemistry, and I would have been okay with a romantic relation being fostered there because of that natural chemistry and because of the genuine nature of both of their backstories and both of their character arcs. The fact that both of them are genuinely aware of what it's like to merely survive to not even have a grasp of what existence is. Both of them got a chance, a lucky break, to enable themselves to crawl their way up to existence and maybe someday work their way up to actually having a life. Survival is insufficient. I really like the presentation of that. It is so logical to me, so wonderfully logical to me, that the doctor is the one person who truly understands that along with her, even though he was her biggest opponent at first, because he was just thinking of, you know, saving their patient, prolonging their lives. He knows exactly what it's like. And as he was, and he's confronted flat out about this. There's no big music, there's no big drama. He's just told, if you were offered a choice, you would fight for your continued life in the face of being reverted to, to survival. And he agrees. And you could, Picardo, Robert Picardo nails the scene. He's just, oh, no, you're right. I would fight for it. I would, I would not choose to revert. And then the final scene where the three of them say their goodbyes and say what's left for them is, is extremely powerful. And I like that last little tidbit of Seven acknowledging Naomi Wildman as family and Naomi saying, you know, I thought you'd want company from your family. If you don't understand the significance of that, while there are arguably some survival mechanics necessary and indeed valuable to having a family, usually when you say the word family, survival has nothing to do with it. Family, a societal connection between two people that implies great uh, personal connection and care to the point where you are willing to take personal loss in order to benefit another, well, that's much more about living, isn't it? That's the intangible side of things as opposed to the tangible. And I like her final acknowledgement of that, and her full embracing and accepting of survival is insufficient. And she was perfectly poised to continue forward in her character arc into whatever direction they wanted to go. <sighs> Love you, Voyager. Really do.
<laughs> That's all I got this time, guys. Great episode. Great episode. I, I might actually rewatch it just because I like it that much if I have time. I will be seeing you guys, however, next week. Oh, wrong one. Ha, <laughs> ha,